Hello and welcome to another Carrick Institute podcast. Today we have Professor Carrick speaking on the topic of the integration of the olivo-cerebellar system. If you'd like to learn more about the clinical neuroscience program or some of our specialty programs such as the movement disorders, vestibular rehabilitation, or clinical neurochemistry, please visit carrickinstitute.com. Every week or so, I get a marvelous question that's sent to me from our dear colleague, Simon Mary, who's now in Australia. So he's got a lot of time in his hands to do some clinical research, but he really has posed some marvelous questions over the years that have been generated as a consequence of his uh, considerable experience using CAPS, uh, force plate uh, posturography, and, and a variety of uh, patient complications. Anyways, thank you. Uh, to dear Simon for his recent question about how that inferior olive and cerebellar network really works in concert to the Purkinje surround inhibition that we talk about when we do vestibular types of activation. So it's a marvelous question. It's a little bit uh, complex, but we'll be talking about it in great detail in the clinical applications in the upcoming Movement Disorders Program. So what do we know? Well, the inferior olive is going to give off uh, climbing fibers that are going to come up into the cerebellar cortex. These are the sole source of climbing fibers. The other mossy fiber uh, activity is is largely from uh, somatosensory activities and other sort of things. Well, what do these climbing fibers do? Everyone talks about spinning people and doing this, that, and the other thing. But what do the climbing fibers do? What does the inferior olive do? Well, the climbing fibers are the, um, the, the, the highways, if you would, that carry sensory motor error. That's very important. The error is uh, carried in climbing fibers. So when we have problems with it, we're going to have problems with timing or coordination. But also the climbing fibers, very importantly, uh, carry clock signals, and the clock signals, these are the temporal signals that really trigger motor learning by looking at, well, not looking at, but actually controlling the Purkinje cell um, plasticity of itself and its discharge. So it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. So we know that Purkinje cells are going to inhibit the output of deep cerebellar nuclei and the cerebellar nuclei are the output of the cerebellum. That's the dentate, the big one, the emboliform, the globus, and the vestigial, which people have a love affair with in, in our uh, business, but more so these guys interconnect. So we know that these Purkinje cells have an inhibitory uh, projection, not only to the output neurons, but back to the inferior olive that uh, excites it, if you would, um, through its climbing fibers. So the output is, is GABA, GABAergic as well. And that pathway from the olive to the Purkinje cell to the olive again is, a, is really a closed loop in the olivocorticonuclear network. So <clears throat> what does this mean? It means that Purkinje cells themselves can, you know, uh, gather together in packs and that these packs of Purkinje cells can basically control 
their own climbing fiber afferents. How cool. You can control the things that influence you. I love that concept, but I, I love it more because it's real. So there's a whole load of recent research that is exploding uh, due to technical advances in imaging and specifically in the development of optogenetic uh, controls of central neurons and this is the utilization of light to discharge activity and there's different mouse models that allow very specific Purkinje cell discharge to be uh, modulated by uh, by light and then we can record what happens in individual nuclei and we can see a variety of different sorts of things. So what do we know about um, about a lot of things. Well, the inferior olive is one of the major sources of inputs that comes into the cerebellum. And it's the sole source of these climbing fibers to the Purkinje cells. Now the Purkinje cells, these are the key in pretty well everything. We talk about uh, using coordinated movements to involve a surround inhibition of Purkinje inhibition. We'll talk about that in great detail clinically when we show some strategies. But we also realize that cerebellar dependent motor control is really the, the slave to the processing or the integration of the, uh, of the Purkinje cell. Now, when we look at this type of activity, there's um, just so many things that we need to be able to harness uh, to understand this functionally closed loop organization in the olivo uh, cerebellar circuitry that's really important in regards to motor learning of the cerebellum and I think probably more so to affect uh, human cognition and a variety of other things because we do know uh, over the last, oh boy, 20 years, but certainly over the last five, there's been an explosion in the understanding of cerebellar influence to, to the brain and to the very humanistic activities that can affect our, our very being, our thought processes and other sorts of things. So that the executive functionality of higher cognition is something that the cerebellar cortex is involved with. It's involved in more than postural control. Now we know the role of cerebellum in postural control and we can understand uh, different aspects of coordination in regards to standing, uh, walking, uh, getting out of a chair and, and different aspects from playing a pan uh, piano uh, on down. But the whole key involves in what the heck is happening in these Purkinje cells. Well, uh, we know uh, that these guys are super important. and. I tell you what, when things are important in the nervous system, they get a whole load of uh, attention. They're like rock stars that are getting all of this synaptic activity. So if you consider that each Purkinje uh, cell, and there's so many of them, but each one receives more than 175,000 parallel fiber synaptic uh, inputs and this carries information about everything that is continuing at the moment in regards to sensory motor contextual activities. 
175,000 parallel fiber synaptic inputs. So when you um, do something in a simple phase, a linear phase such as uh, doing a, a curl from a barbell versus making figure of eights with your patients or with yourself that is complex, the simple uniplanar type of activity has a tendency to have somatosensory activation of specific target cells of the cerebellum that are linked through the um, mesencephalon to specific target areas in the motor cortex that are involved with that volitional activation of the individual limb. And when they do this type of activity, the collaterals that excite the cerebellar output neurons also excite a Purkinje cell that inhibits that output. And at the same time, they excite uh, parallel fibers, and it's the parallel fibers that pop around and inhibit other Purkinje cells that surround them. So that each Purkinje cells having, you know, uh, 175,000 parallel fibers, it's a whole load. Well, intermixed with this, with all of this stuff, we've got each Purkinje shell, cell having a single inferior olivary afferent. So you go, what the heck? 175,000 visitors, but only one, 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 a single inferior olivary uh, afferent. So this is the climbing fiber that comes from the olivary complex. It's the one that triggers a complex spike, and it is the one that modulates the firing of the Purkinje cell. Again, it controls the synaptic input plasticity. Okay, so... Uh, on and on, going around that and around that in so many different ways. So the when you look at um, the servo-mechanistic uh, types of loops, we're going to realize that when we look at the Purkinje cells themselves, they're grouped into different zones. And if you can imagine a network of a bunch of cells like armies that are throwing spears to inhibit output neurons, you get a pretty good idea of how they line up, you know, shoulder to shoulder, if you would. So these, um, you have microzones, and if you look at them, the cells are grouped in, in a whole load of these parasagittal microzones, and each one of them is going to receive a projection from individual uh, distinct areas of the inferior olive. So all of a sudden you look at this segregation and you look at inferior olivary projections and one climbing fiber going to one uh, Purkinje cell and that the Purkinje cells are grouped and each group is going to receive these projections from individual stereotopic groupings of the inferior olive and uh, they themselves will project to the subregions of individualized cerebellar nuclei. So you have this marvelous orchestration of coordinated topography, which is very, very exciting. So what do we know in the cerebellar uh, neurons? We know that the Purkinje cells inhibit um, the cerebellar neurons and the inhibitory um, uh, contacts are on neurons that themselves are excitatory and are going to project to a whole load of premotor areas and uh, therefore the inhibition of this outward excitation 
is really going to change the output. So uh, with this, we also know that the uh, Purkinje cells are also going to uh, contact the uh, cerebellar neuron inhibitory neurons that target inferior olivary uh, cells. So not only do we inhibit the output of the cerebellum to their projections, to the mesencephalon and to the thalamus and ultimately the brain, but we are also uh, going to contact these inhibitory neurons that will inhibit the inferior olive cells. And these are the olive cells that pop up to uh, to integrate into the Purkinje cells themselves. So this pathway of the, the, the nucleo-olivary pathway, it is organized. It's beautifully distinct, or we're going to say that it's going to have multiple parallel projections that are going to be directed towards the inferior, uh, inferior, the inferior uh, olive subnuclei. And so this loop, the olivary corticonuclear loop, really exists, and the discharge of a population of these Purkinje cells in an individual microzone is is going to have a consequence on the output of the cerebellum. It's going to have a consequence also of controlling its own input. So I I get just flabbergasted thinking of the majesty of the system that can inhibit an output to something else, but at the same time inhibit an input to itself. So what do we know? We know that when you stimulate these Purkinje cells or you stimulate this nucleo-olivary pathway, that the olivary cell firing itself is significantly reduced I mean, that is that is the whole deal. There's a whole load of pharmaceutical research, and uh, in uh, animal research, there's genetic manipulations of Purkinje cells or olivary cells, and when you use different drugs, you can induce reciprocal modulation of the firing of uh, Purkinje cells and individual climbing fibers by manipulating the, the Purkinje cell itself. So the Purkinje cell in the cerebellum can tonically modulate the nucleo-olivary pathway. Now think for a second that if you do something to inhibit the Purkinje cell as a consequence of a surround, let's say you're going to move a limb in one static movement, or let's say you're going to have a vertebral positioning that is static, and as a consequence, the input to the cerebellar output is going to be associated with the collateral that excites uh, stellates and basket cells that affect these parallel directions that themselves inhibit the Purkinje cell output. So if you in, so that if you if you have a static movement uh, that decreases the output uh, of the uh, cerebellum, you also will decrease the inhibition of the uh, olivary um, climbing fibers. So you would increase if you would, the uh, climbing fiber integration of Purkinje cell. And that's that one single climbing fiber to each Purkinje cell and then a whole load of parallel fibers in that individual uh, pathway. So the question that we have, of course, is whether uh, we can uh, 
recruit this pathway. We know it's not a tonic pathway. It's got to be on-off or temporally related. And and to understand whether the, the circuit really is closed loop or whether we have other integrations, and we would think, of course, that anything that is going to have a consequence with um, uh, with activating the olivary uh, system is going to have a context on on uh, cerebellar activity. So that's that's really really super. Well, we know that timing is central to uh, cerebellar types of functioning, and we know that the biggest timed event that we have with integration into that cerebellum is the. Um, is the all very complex projections, the climbing fibers that are going to synapse on these Purkinje cells. So the inferior olive is this sole source, and the inferior olive is going to respond to optokinetic stimulation, somatosensory stimulation, a variety of other sorts of things. So we would expect that the output of the inferior olive is going to have, of course, the motor uh, consequences that we can understand, but more beautifully, the non-motor or the the executive or the cognitive types of functionality. So there's a whole a lot of uh, thought uh, specific to these individual uh, clock neurons, and that's really exciting for us, right? When we talk about uh, clock neurons or these timing neurons, and it all points down to the inferior olive, or all we're going to say, the good majority of it uh, comes down to this type of uh, of, uh, of component. So we know that when we look at uh, motor performance of temporal sequences or perceptual aspects involving time that we are going to activate the cerebellar cortex and that has been seen with different experimentation in humans and uh, imaging uh, we also know things like the activation of the inferior olive occurs only when individual people are going to perceive the temporal sequences without any motor activity at all and we know that there's a decreased responsiveness of the inferior olivary nucleus to sensory input when you have a, an expected self-produced movement. So that when you're moving or you're doing something, you're going to decrease the responsiveness of this olivary uh, complex. At the end of the day, the, the common feeling now is that the primary role of the inferior olive and therefore the climbing uh, fibers would be the encoding of temporal information and that temporal information would be encoded independent of the motor behavior of the individual person. How wonderful uh, is this type of aspects? And you have a lot of people that have jumped on this bus. Uh, Jeffrey Shamaman and his group from Harvard have done amazing things. Uh, he talked about um, cortical dysmetria that occurs when the cerebellum isn't contributing appropriately. So this microstructure and circuitry throughout the cerebellar cortex really uh, tells us that the, the motor pathways that we know, you know, touching your finger to your nose and heel to shin, has a probability of working in a similar way as the non-motor cognitive processes. And this is central to 
all of the clinical theorems or the basic science theorems of how the cerebellum works, how it mediates uh, learning or acquisition and retention of things that you can learn. And this would include not only uh, playing the piano or movements, but also uh, thoughts and ito in his work in the cerebellum back in the early 90s, uh, really, I think, hit that, uh, that ball home. Read some of his earlier works. But there's, there's other advances where we look at the ability to weed out uh, mismatches or sensory errors, or we would say that there has to be an ability to look at intended versus perceived outcomes of what's happening around you, whether they be the cognitive or whether they they be the, the motor. And the ability to do this may be dependent upon uh, these clock functions or clock neurons that we say, uh, which would look at the cerebellum really as sort of like the click, 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 internal metronome or internal uh, clock or internal timing uh, that would be involved both, again, in the cognitive, executive, functional, as well as the motor aspect. So this clock function, the function of time cleaning, has been postulated for a whole load of time uh, to be associated between the, the integration of the inferior olivary complex and its target cells in the cerebellum. So the the sole source of climbing fibers to the Purkinje cells comes from the olive, so the olive must be involved in this temporal uh, timing or this rhythmic oscillation of things that uh, that we know. So what can we say for sure? Not so darn much because we know that the primary role of the olive and the climbing fibers is... is uh, temporal or timing and motor control but the fact is is that we don't know enough about it but we do know some things that give us some clinical inputs that suggest that uh, that role of the olivocerebellar system in timing and error of movement is an ongoing process and uh, that process would be only limited to the firing rate of the olivary neurons and they are relatively slow intrinsically and they respond to different activities. So if you know clinical things that can activate the olivary complex, you can change the temporal relationships of executive functionality and the temporal relationships of planned motor activity or the timing of fast movements and slow movements and the timing and the modulation of individual output of the cerebellum or the rhythmicity or the synchronization of firing of this orchestra of olivary neurons and their target populations really just give me goosebumps. So um, there are people that have gone further. The work of Welsh, um, oh boy, you know, in I guess about 10 years ago, that uh, described autism as a dysfunctional expression of inferior olivary processing that results in temporal impairment of processing and reaction to input of the sensorium that comes in a little bit uh, a little bit quicker. So when we look at um, the cerebellar cortex itself, I mean that's ultimately 
where your time is going to occur is a consequence largely of olivary uh, integration. And remember that the cerebellum is going to inhibit, inhibit its own activation as it does so very elegantly with everything else. Now, there also is a dissociation in the cerebellar cortex between the medial or older portions of the cerebellum and the lateral or, uh, or, or newer uh, portions. Now, when you've got a problem in the older area, the most medial areas of the cerebellum, we're going to have impairment of timing, and that timing is going to give you different components clinically that we would see, such as aberrations in a motor task, like uh, taking your finger to your thumb or tapping your foot on the floor or finger tapping, etc. Whereas the lateral lesions are going to affect more of the temporal timing output or clock variability itself. So that's pretty interesting, uh, interesting for us. But th there's been a whole lot of debate as to whether or not the uh, dissociation between the medial and lateral sides of the cerebellum really represented dissociation or whether it's just uh, uh, something that is, well, sort of neat, but the, the two sides integrate anyways. So uh, we know from uh, functional MRI that the activation uh, of the cerebellum during timing tasks such as tap, 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 you know, bump, 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 uh, that sort of tapping uh, shows activation of both the medial and lateral zones. And the, the things that we know is that the perception or the motor aspects of timing are very difficult to to dissociate from you know the medial side to the to the lateral side. So what does that mean? It means to say that we really are not too sure that you can look at uh, motor behavior without the temporal, rational, uh, higher cortical activity, and that is pretty darn exciting. I think to um, to all of us. So if you go back in time uh, to human aspects of clinical activity, we think of um, clinical studies such as eye blink commands, and we know that all of very complex is really going to show you aberrancies in eye blink. We also know that the VOR adapts um, through integration in the olivary complex. And if you don't adapt the VOR, uh, for instance, if gaze stabilization uh, exercises don't work, then you've got to do something to the inferior olive to, to pop it up. And we'll, we'll show you clinically how you're going to, to do that. We also know that the uh, that, that there's controversy right now in regards to this function, the microcircuitry and and all of these things that are that are coming um, coming about. So we we know that we have um, a variety of propositions that try to explain the functional aspects of what we see in regards to timed responses of the motoric system, and we know that there is a relationship in the executive functionality. We know that the environmental consequences of gravity or stressors and visual system are going to be processed 
through a whole load of receptors, mechanoreceptors in the joints, muscles, spindles, retinal receptors, uh, auditory receptors, etc. So when we look at uh, timing or the information that the cerebellum receives, it's pretty um, simple or intuitive to realize that the integration has got to go through numerous pre-cerebellar systems and that these are going to end synaptically in different areas of the cerebellar cortex that is very, very specifically oriented in relationship to its afferent and its afferent output. Now, the input to the cerebellum is uh, largely uh, through the climbing fibers of the olivary complex as well as the mossy fibers that you're well aware of, somatosensory activities. So when we look at the output of the cerebellar cortex, and that, that means to say the projections that reach our vestibular nuclei, the projections that reach the central cerebellar system, that's the Purkinje cells. Now, when we look at the Purkinje cells that will inhibit, inhibit the frequency of firing through the climbing fibers, we look at some marvelous uh, types of consequences that would uh, allow us to do something that is pretty magical in regards to our directed types of uh, therapies. Or to say it differently, we could divide through clinical anatomical regions, individual units that would consist of a particularly zone of Purkinje cells that are associated with a very specific input from the inferior olive. And then we can look at their uh, innervation of the associated cerebellar or vestibular nucleus associated with that territory. And we can refer to them, uh, as we do in science, as a cerebellar module. Now, in addition to the loops that come between the olive and the cerebellum, uh, we have another uh, three-element loop. We have all these three-element loops from Renshaw cells in the, in the cord to all of these uh, little excitatory inhibitory types of loops. So we have another loop that's clinically important, I believe, a loop that's superimposed upon the olivocerebellar system. And this is a loop that uses the midbrain or the, the mesencephalon. And this is the olivocerebellar mesodiencephalic loop. That's a crazy important loop. Um, and it's, it's important because the cerebellar nuclei contains both excitatory and inhibitory projection neurons. The inhibitory ones are going to inhibit the inferior olive using GABA, that GABAergic uh, feedback. But the excitatory neurons, these are the mediators uh, by which we influence motor behavior. We've got to excite it uh, to make things happen. And one of the biggest targets of these is the mesodiencephalic junction or the contralateral mesencephalon. You know this as uh, areas that integrate with vestibular activity, specifically uh, the interstitial nucleus of Cahell, as well as the nucleus of Darkshevitz, uh, the red nucleus, the nucleus of, uh, of Bacteru and the zona inserta and the, the subparafasicularis nucleus and prerubral reticular formation. Well, what does all this mean? It means to say that we, we can do some clinical things and look at outputs. If we want to look at motor outputs, we know that the red nucleus in the mesencephalon, it's going to project directly 
to motor neurons, ventral horn cells, as well as interneurons that are in the spinal cord. And that's going to uh, affect motor activity of your limbs. Whereas the integration in, uh, oh, the mesencephalic nuclei are going to project back down to the inferior olive. So that's really, really super. And, And this occurs with pretty well all of those mesencephalic nuclei outside of the red nucleus, whether it be Cahel or Darchowitz or uh, Betz-Teru, if you just think when you activate these guys, they're going to have an effect on the inferior olive. And, and therefore, that olivocerebellar mesodiencephalic loop will be formed by the, uh, by the collaterals of the olivary uh, complex that affects cerebellar nuclei, and then from the cerebellar nuclei, up to the mesodiencephalic junction, and then from the mesodiencephalic junction back down to the inferior olive. So we have the olivocerebellar uh, modules that are specific uh, groupings, if you if you would, uh, from the olive to the Purkinje cell, back to the olive that inhibit it. And then you have this more complex loop, which comes um, from the olive uh, into the cerebellum and up to the contralateral mesencephalic, diencephalic juncture, and then back down to the olive again. Now, when you look at the olivary complex, the olivary complex is really uh, topographically organized. The cerebellum is topographically organized. The brain is topographically organized. We've got tonotopic, we've got motor topic, we've got Uh, all these individual loops, and it makes sense in order to do things very specifically. So if you look at the top of the middle aspect, and we think middle, even though there's this disconnect between the theory of disconnection, uh, the medial portions of the cerebellum seem to be associated greater with more primitive motor temporal types of aspect. And the top of the medial uh, accessory olive or the rostral medial accessory olive, it's going to project to the back of the interposed cerebellar nuclei. So we have our dentate, our globose, and our interposed nucleus, and our vestigial. So this has a specific projection to the nucleus interpositus, and this in turn is going to come and and innervate the the mesencephalic nucleus of Darkshevitz, which projects to the rostral medial accessory olive, but the principal olivary projections are going to go to the dentate. So we've got all of these nice little neat projections of the olive to specific cerebellar uh, areas, and then we can uh, look at different integration of red nucleus, mesencephalic nucleus, and and, and what what's the take home component here. Well, the the olivocerebellar meson, uh, mesodiencephalic loop is an excitatory loop. How cool is that? It just excites. Boom, 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 excite. So it's a reverberating loop. But how are you going to control it? Well, you can control it by inhibiting the interneurons in the loop, specifically in the cerebellar nuclei. And you can control that by having different movements, whether they are simple or complex in regards to their surround inhibition. So when we look at inhibitory neurons that can inhibit cerebellar output or inhibitory neurons that can affect 
the mesencephalon, and you know what they are from the uh, basal ganglia and other uh, aspects uh, of these types of things, or by the individual feedback loop of the uh, olivocerebellar olivo uh, feedback loop or individual Purkinje cells, onwards and onwards, we're going to be able to change the brain. So the individual Purkinje cell axons are going to innervate both excitatory neurons in the cerebellar nuclei, the excitatory neurons that project uh, to the mesodiencephalic junction and the inhibitory neurons that provide a GABAergic input to the olive. So here you look at these, these Purkinje cells, and I just get flabbergasted to realize that they can control, at the same time, both the excitatory, reverberating olivocerebellar mesodiencephalic loop, as well as the inhibitory feedback loop that could also uh, control the excitatory uh, olivocerebellar mesodiencephalic loop. Okay. So I tell you, Simon Mary, I love your questions, and I hope I'm doing a little bit of justice to your question, but I need a few more hours to go through it, and now I'm excited to talk more about it, so we will, but I'm not going to keep you on this one and try. I've gone well over my half hour of uh, time that I took to talk about what I thought would take about five minutes, but the clinical applications of these things are great. I'm excited to share more of that with you and and to to really uh, get our, our learners up to an area of currency in knowledge so that they might develop applications that have a better chance for us to uh, serve humankind. So uh, thank you, Simon, for asking this question. And it's, um, it's a heady question. It's a tough one. And um, people may have to listen to this a few times or read the literature. There's a, a lot out there right now. And hopefully they're saying the same things that I'm saying to you. I'm fairly contemporary on this, but uh, we can expect some changes to occur. So thanks again. And um, I just love this. Thank you uh, for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on carrickinstitute.com.